90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, pretty well, pretty well, just working away. How about you? Oh, I'm going to be back in the lab soon. I've been doing some more bracket making and instrument design and 3D printing, uh, getting ready for another round of experiments here in a week or so. Oh, I wish I could say the same thing. Um, we dismantled most of our magnetometer and sent it off to be fixed. So my lab work consists of painting and vacuuming. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> Dress I up mean, the place while the magnetometer's gone. Exactly. Um, it's a small room and a large piece of equipment. So I figured while it's while it's out of there, um, we're going to do some deep cleaning, which I'm not sure has been done to that room since it was built in the 90s. So... I would say you can probably apply, you know, sedimentary geology principles, you know, <laughs> uniformitarianism, how undergrads have been depositing things there. And... You're absolutely right. There was trying to get all the uh, the cables wrapped up to send back to the manufacturer was, I wish I had a dust mask. It was pretty bad. But um, <laughs> So how does uh, one good. ship a magnetometer? Oh, well, one would build a special crate and then use lots of foam and um, support structures within said crate to ensure hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment is okay. I mean, you could have had the Amazon people come in and they would have put a really big box around it and like two or three of those little airmail thing, the <laughs> air bubbles, and it would have been fine. Uh, I mean, you know, if you could land one on Mars, it can... Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but so... Um, it is satisfying, not as satisfying as running data, but it is satisfying to um, get everything spruced up. So that's nice. Yeah, I mean, I think doing things, actually affecting the physical world around you is a really satisfying experience in itself. I mean, it kind of gets lost in this knowledge work that we do. But when you actually get to make something, it's very satisfying. Uh, it really is. I, I love the word knowledge work as a euphemism for sitting in front of a computer. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's true. That's what it is, right? I mean, it's still a, a form of work, but very rarely are you physically exhausted from it at the end of the day. Mentally exhausted, absolutely. But physically exhausted, eh, not so much. Yeah, exactly. But mentally exhausted is enough to keep me from going to the gym. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but so I think that's kind of something that is worth exploring. And I saw a couple of articles recently that gave me an idea for putting together this particular show talking about science and why we're bad at it and why people need to work with their hands to get better at it. Uh, yes, I think this is really, I know these are conversations that we have certainly had in the past quite a lot. And, um, the more I teach and the more people that I talk to that are sort of older than me, basically, um, the more that I believe those things are true. So it is definitely a, a prescient topic, I believe. Yeah, and it's amazing some of the misconceptions that people have about science. And we'll talk about several of them, but one of the most shocking ones to me is how many people, because I like to go out and look at the space station uh, go overhead. You know, there's an app on my phone that tells me when it's coming over. How many people you tell them what you're doing, and they look at you like you're crazy and know nothing about a space station that's been in orbit around the Earth for 15 years? Uh, yes, exactly. Um, clearly, they haven't read Seven Eves. 
<laughs> Sorry, Clearly. I'm going to try to keep it going. Just like ice is a mineral, I'm going to try yeah. to keep it, keep it relevant. <laughs> um, right. And so I teach this class that is an intro level class. And so to most universities' credits, every student has to take a science class that has a laboratory component. So my class, this native science class, fulfills that um, fulfills that requirement. And on the first day, I always ask, how many of you are afraid of science? And this year, for the first time, I mean, usually people will raise their hand. Sometimes people are pretty shy about it. But this year, for the first time, I bet 80 to 90% of my class raised their hands. Wow. Yes. <laughs> and it all had to do with math and memorization. That and was... The most of the things that were offered for why you're scared is that it's a bunch of words I have to memorize and there's a bunch of computations that I can't do. Well, and there is a lot of math in science, but the memorization, I mean, that's one thing that we're going to hit on. Memorization isn't science. Yes, exactly. But I, that's how it's, that's how it's sort of seen by people that aren't as immersed in it. I mean, it's hard for you and I to take ourselves out of a science world, because I think it's fair to say, since we were both tiny, <laughs> right? we've really been into this. <laughs> so it is hard, but you and I also, as is evidenced by this podcast, want everyone to have at least a rudimentary understanding of science, because it's imbued in everything that we do. And most people don't realize that. Yeah, and that's something that we've talked about a lot. And then I read this article over at Quartz, it's linked in the show notes, that's called There's a Good Reason Americans Are Horrible at Science. Um, yeah, this is a really great article. <laughs> and there's been a lot of articles like this. I mean, you can read about it in The Atlantic and The New York Times, which we're going to talk about another one of those articles, too. And, you know, you can't say America's had a big deal to do with advancing science, right? And this article points that out. But it seems like we might be going backwards lately. Yeah. And just look around at, you know, I, I've heard somewhere that about one in 10 people think that we never landed on the moon. <laughs> we know that a third of people think there is no sound scientific evidence for evolution. And this article mentions that um, only two-thirds of Americans could answer whether the sun orbits the earth or the earth orbits the sun. And I'm and actually that's rather surprised. terrifying. Yes. I'm surprised <laughs> it's that high to tell you the truth. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, and then I don't think these specific things were mentioned in the article, but I, the thing that came to mind was uh, Senator Jim Inhofe from Oklahoma going in uh. with a snowball while it was snowing in D.C. and saying there isn't climate change. Uh, that's so disappointing. Or Alaskan Senator Ted Stevens describing the Internet, saying it's not a big truck, it's a series of tubes. Which, I mean, is ridiculous and is quoted a lot. But here's the deal. Jim Inhofe is the chair of a climate committee in the Senate. Yeah. That's a big deal. It's a huge deal because we have folks in leadership positions that don't understand basic science. And we're not going to get into politics. This isn't a politics show. But that's a really important thing. And it's why everybody needs to be informed about the basics of science. Exactly. It, and, and just what you just said, it's everybody that needs to hear about it, not just 
the people making the decisions. You know, you don't, you always want a team of smart people helping you make decisions, but you need to have, you know, a buy-in into it as well, as does everyone else, because what we've failed at in Western education is compartmentalizing science into this thing that is just seen as a bunch of facts to be memorized. It's not something that is integrated throughout everything we do. It's something I strive to do in this class that I teach is to look back at sort of not just Native American, but all kinds of indigenous cultures. You know, indigenous people didn't sit down and have science class. And yet they have, <laughs> exactly. And yet they have adequate and completely accurate explanations for things like we've talked about on the show already. You know, Anupiat um, talking about different types of snow and how they come about. You know, things like volcanoes and describing earthquakes. Yes, earthquakes aren't caused by a herd of turtles. But aspects of plate tectonics are in those stories that they tell. So Western science has taken science and made it into this sort of objective laboratory thing that has all this vocabulary. And so now people don't understand it at all. But that's not how we should be teaching. Well, yeah. And the people that don't understand science, we're definitely not saying that these are dumb people. These are educated people. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in leadership positions or they wouldn't be doing whatever they're doing. So this is kind of a a difficult thing because they're educated people, but they don't fundamentally understand what science is. And also, we're humans. We're, we're subject to things like confirmation bias and dissonance theory, where when your brain has conflicting information, its number one priority is to resolve that and make you the hero of the story or change the story or do whatever has to happen. And that's just how the brain works. This is probably me being a little bit biased because uh, I just got a recommendation for a book, actually from a programming instructor, uh, for a book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. And I, I like these, uh, I guess, pop psychology books would be the best way to describe it. And it, it talks about all of these things, and it's really, really fascinating uh, uh, yes. to look at human behavior. And you see a lot of things like climate change denial coming straight from the things they're talking about in the book, uh, you know, like striking parallels to the Watergate scandal. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, exactly. I think gratifyingly enough, there's a lot of talk about bias now. And it's not just in, you know, the hard sciences, but in the social sciences, too. Um, I know there's a lot of sort of racial tensions, especially around universities, it seems like, going on lately, especially at my university. And so even, you know, social biases are a thing that comes up, but it can be directly related to the hard sciences as well. This goes across everything because, just like you said, we're humans, and we forget that subjectivity is always there. And so... As scientists, we need to work with that um, and realize that it's there and move on. But it seems like it becomes all-encompassing sometimes. You know, if you can't be objective, then you're too subjective or you make up data and stuff like this. And so people need to be taught differently about science to sort of start educating them. Because just like you said, they're not dumb people. But whose fault is it? You know, is it the person's fault? Is it the institution's fault? Is it a bit of both? Where do we start? Yeah. And really, when you're memorizing these facts or being told these facts 
or just being subject to human bias, it, it, you got to remember Richard Feynman's quote where he said, the first principle of science is that you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's I really like that quote because it's so true. And people just don't realize, there's a quote directly from this article. It says, scientific literacy has little to do with memorizing information and a lot to do with a rational approach to problems. Yes. Um, This is where we're not teaching it right. And from a very early time, I feel like, because that's what people care about. I try to tell my students this, and I know it's something that no one cares about, but as I teach more, it's becoming so much more important to me is that I'm teaching you to be a critical thinker. I'm not teaching you that you have to memorize all the mineral formulas for sedimentary rocks, which is a small list. I'll grant you (laughs) quartz, but (laughs) there's some feldspar in there. Um, (laughs) But I'm teaching you how to think about this stuff. You know, I'm trying to teach you processes because if you learn to think critically about anything, it, translates in every part of your life and that's what science is it's not just memorizing all this vocabulary but vocabulary scares everyone off yeah i mean jargon is the the word we use to rationalize vocabulary uh or uh, maybe that's the reverse actually but yeah, there's this talk I saw at AGU in the education section uh, talking about this exact problem. And I linked in this website, Understanding Science. It's a Berkeley website. And it's basically a tool to teach about the scientific method and how it's not you do A, then you do B, then you do C. It's really you do A, you do B. Uh, it didn't work. You go back to A, then, okay, you jump to C and try. Okay, no. It's this iterative revising process where we jump around. But it all is in one framework that we've talked about before about how to approach a problem in some kind of systematic way. So I love this, you explaining that, because it goes back to this thing that I know I've talked about before, but when I made my first lab for this class I was talking about, it's about the scientific method, and I was trying to redo the figures, and the point was so that there wasn't this linear scientific method, but I tried to make this triangle with the scientific method, but I also was using Illustrator for the first time, and it took me eight hours to make this dumb triangle (laughs) (laughs) in Illustrator, but it was great because I used the scientific method to make the triangle while making a figure about the scientific method. (laughs) Very meta. Uh, Yes, it sure was. (laughs) Well, and, and one thing that I know a lot of people try to do outreach through, you know, these little videos and things online, which are great, but... Those two-minute science videos show you a collection of facts. They're getting better about showing you the method used to get to these set of facts, but I feel like at least the initial ones really gave people a bad case of the Holiday Inn Express effect. (laughs) Seeing a two-minute science video made them a nuclear physicist or a chemist or a botanist. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. I mean, I don't know if you remember those commercials. I think they haven't been on in a couple years, but somebody goes up and they walk into an operating room and start doing surgery. And they say, you're not Dr. So-and-so. And the person says, no, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's the exact effect that we're talking about. A little bit of information is really dangerous. It's a lot more dangerous than more information. Yes, or no information at all in some cases. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and, and that's by no means saying that these aren't wonderful tools. 
those two minute videos are great, you know, and I, I think they're excellent for someone who's already interested in science. They see this, they get even more inspired to dig deeper, but that's what they're there for is an inspiration to keep learning about whatever topic, not to say, this is all you need to know about this topic done. Exactly. Well, and I I think there's a lot to be said about who's telling you the information too. Mm -hmm. I think this is almost everything to be said is about where you're getting it from because it's someone in authority. It's saying this and you're supposed to trust what they're saying. Okay. Well, how can you verify that? I think this is a very hard and very important thing to talk about when talking about facts in science. Yeah, because there aren't really that many facts. And right. <laughs> it, it uh, reminded me a little bit of the Milgram experiment. Are yeah, you familiar with that? No, you're going to have to remind me which one this is. Okay, so the Milgram experiment was some experimenter comes up to you, says they're studying uh, punishment to reinforce learning. Oh, yeah, I remember And this you're supposed to administer a shock to somebody. Mm-hmm. And there was a fake scream that went with it and all this. And so you start out with the low levels of shock, and they kept telling you to turn the voltage up and up and up. And it was shocking how high people would go because somebody in a white lab coat was telling them to do it. It was much higher than they'd ever said they would have gone. So this trusting in a pure authority to hand down, I mean, that's, that's why things like plate tectonics were completely rejected, right? We talked about that recently. Uh, right. Exactly. Um and but you have to learn from someone so how do you how do you do this and this is where if you've been taught how to critically think you should be able to understand the people who are giving you you know i mean jim inhoff can't give you climate facts he's not a climatologist he's not a scientist period so if you're a critical thinker you understand that and you don't listen to him and his views on climate change <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, looking, this is again, looking at science as a collection of facts, you're a lot more likely to resist changing those facts. Whereas if you look at science as a process and it has this current body of knowledge that we continue to iterate on, you're a lot more open to change. That's perfect. That needs to be said again, (laughs) because it's absolutely (laughs) true. Um, It's the hard part about teaching science is breaking down people's teaching anything is breaking down people's preconceived notions about something. And so in order to do that, you have to teach them how to approach that. You can't just say, you're wrong, here's why. That never works, ever. Yeah, and and when you're looking at real data or reading something that a scientist has written, you have to critically think about it. I mean, granted, the scientists critically thought about it, but you need to also do that because when you don't do that, you write a clickbait headline. <laughs> uh, I love this in the show notes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, there's nothing... God, I read one the other day. This was painful to me because you know how much I love cats. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it said, owning cats causes extreme mental health issues in life. And I had to click on it, right? And I already knew the story. It's because cats carry toxoplasmosis. And if you catch it, then it can possibly, there's studies that say that these toxoplasmosis little parasites can affect your, how you behave. 
but it's not extreme mental illness or anything like that. I already knew that. I've read scientific papers about it, but I still clicked on that stupid headline. (laughs) But if no one had read scientific papers about it, like I had, they're like, oh God, get rid of your cats. This is awful. As opposed to teaching your children about caring for an animal and responsibility and empathy and all those other great things that come along with owning a pet. Right. And we're not saying that you should be an expert because nobody can be an expert in everything. You can just try to be informed and know how to go looking for information to confirm what you've heard. Because otherwise, if if you don't know what's going on, people will manipulate data and use that to manipulate you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's marketing. (laughs) Yes, which I believe should be outlawed, and I am highly against it, mostly because I am susceptible to it, and it infuriates me. (laughs) No, I mean, that's that's a whole other show, but we do need marketing, right? And it's a very interesting look into psychology, but when you apply something like that to science and people use it for nefarious purposes, maybe not the best thing. Exactly, but when you have been taught in how to check facts and understand the processes you can more easily recognize it as opposed to just being hook line and sinkered into believing these things you know yes i verbed hook line and sinker (laughs) (laughs) well and so i mean i guess to kind of sum up this part we're just saying that science is a tool not a collection of facts so it's more like a flashlight to illuminate topics it's not the article that tells you how battery chemistry works right exactly and you think like a scientist every day when you say what am i going to wear today you're automatically doing the scientific method right there and i think that surprises a lot of people it's the example that i use to say you know how to critically think so now apply those same skills what do you do you check your phone and check the weather you check the television weather you do something and figure it out that's you what you collect should learn data. in science. Exactly. That's what yeah. you should learn in science. Not that, you know, they're 90 degree cleavage planes on halite. That's great. You need to know that for the test, but. <laughs> right. <laughs> but whatever. Um, so, yes, exactly. Scientific process and critical thinking, just like you said, are the key things. Yeah. Uh, and I think that leads nicely into the next thing, which was actually working with your hands and doing something because working on something in the physical world is a great way to ingrain the scientific method in you. Yes. Yes. If you don't do something and fail at it, then you're not going to learn from it, which is any scientist worth their salt says, I'd rather fail at something because I learn more about it than when I just do everything and it happens exactly like it's expected to, you know, failing teaches you so much and I mean, for me, that's easy to do when I try to work with my hands because <laughs> you have to overcome a lot of a lot of issues no matter what you're doing, whether it's like making a craft, which I do a lot of, or, you know, building a circuit board, right? Yeah. And there is this article, New York Times article, that will be linked in the show notes by Matthew Crawford. And I'm also reading his book right now. So I've got the audio book going for That Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me and the physical book going. Uh, called Shop Class as Soul Craft. Ah, okay. And gonna... so, I don't know, I mean, what were your thoughts on this article? Um, well, I mean, I'm married to a mechanic, so <laughs> we talk about this an awful lot. Um, I know a story that I recently shared with you. Um, I was talking to 
a professor who he had a large stream table and they had some very extensive experiments um, with LIDAR and stuff that were tracking how the sediment was changing in this river system that's, you know, a model in a laboratory. And the pump went down. And he got a call really late about the students were freaking out because the pump went down. And he said, well, fix it. No one could fix it. It's just a simple pump. And not one person knew how to fix it. And that's unbelievable. That's a skill that anyone would have had probably 30 years ago, right? Yeah. And, I mean, this is this book is by a person who now is a motorcycle mechanic with a Ph.D., and it's it's really interesting to hear his view on things, why he chose this route, and it's a lot of the things we've been talking about, about how satisfying it is to do something physical and how it's still really doing science. And he's not the only person to say this. Uh, I mean, the, the Mythbusters, Adam Savage, had uh, a rant a few months ago that I thought was fantastic. So he was... Uh, talking to an interviewer about uh, you know science, technology, engineering, and math, and tests, and the fact that we're teaching to tests now, and all this, and he said, "I'll quote: If you want the kids' test scores up, bring back band and bring back shop, and get kids actually learning stuff instead of teaching them how to take a test, because you need art in there to complete an education." <laughs> uh, this is a hundred percent true. Um, I could not. Agree more. Um, having just had a parent-teacher conference uh, not a week ago and lamenting with my first grader's teacher about how she spends all of her time assessing students according to these standards as opposed to just getting to teach. And so in this New York Times article talking about working with your hands and everything, they talk about that many jobs are being reduced to rule-following. And that's how they want jobs to be done. But there aren't many jobs that are successful by just following rules. But we're not teaching people how to do anything else except for make this hamburger just like this. Don't think. Don't do anything different. This is it. Yeah. And as scientists especially, we have to know how to do things. But just people in everyday life too. I mean, it's... You don't want to have to be dependent on an expert for every single thing. When, you're, when your sink drain clogs up, now it's easier than ever. Used to, you would go to the library and get a book or just call a plumber. Now you can pull your phone out, Google it, and several YouTube videos will come up telling you how to do exactly what you need to do. And in half an hour, you fix the problem, you've used your hands, you've saved money, and you've learned a skill, and you learned troubleshooting. Exactly, which is relevant for any job you could ever have. This kills me when people are like, you know, man, I'm exhausted. You know, we've been we've been working on the house and we've been redoing this and we've been doing this. I'm like, oh, yeah, like you're doing it? Oh, no, no, no. We have people doing it. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> one of my best friends, I mean, she does all of her own work. Her dad would roll over in his grave if he found out, you know, that she wasn't the one, you know, laying down tile or replacing carpet or something like that. Because why would you pay someone to do that? And just like you said, it's even easier now to figure out how to do these things. But I think people don't know how to do it. They don't know how to think critically. 
and they don't want to. And that's what I don't understand is like, where did we become okay with the fact that these office jobs, these knowledge jobs are the only thing out there? Yeah. And, and I don't know where the disconnect happened when troubleshooting became such a rare skill. So say you work in an office and the printer jams. I don't know how many times people have called IT to deal with a paper jam in the printer <laughs> instead of trying to follow the on-screen directions and solve the problem. Oh, exactly. Um, and, and you know, we're not perfect. I had this no. happen the <laughs> other day. <laughs> um, you know, we're not trying to be chastising, but we are bringing up these things that need to be thought of. I mean, by ourselves, too, because I called IT the other day because I couldn't follow links in my email. They wouldn't let me do it. It said it was controlled by some you know, higher authority, not letting me follow these. And he's like, oh, it's just, you know, it's this problem with Outlook. You just need to do this. And it's like, I could have troubleshooted that. I should have done that. Um, so we're not saying that. But I do want to bring up, it's the, the third sentence in this New York Times article, which is great. And it talks about how people love the deadliest catch and dirty jobs. And it says, the weird fascination of these shows must lie partly in the fact that such confrontations with material reality have become exotically unfamiliar. <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. That's the greatest sentence for this day and age, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to reemphasize what you said about we're definitely not infallible. I mean, I've done a lot of stupid things, done a lot of tech support phone calls that didn't need to be. <laughs> and I have I talked about the the laying out a seismic line in Oklahoma and the farmer on the show before? Oh, I don't know. But that's a good I, one. <laughs> I'm not sure if I have or not. So if you've already heard it, bear with me. But it's been a while if it has. Uh, so we were putting out this seismic line in Oklahoma and a farmer drove by to go do something in his field and stopped and asked what we were doing and all this. And we told him, okay, he went on. He cut the hay in his field, turned around, was coming back by, and he stopped and he said, why did you put all your stuff on this side of the road? And we said, well, it just, it's the side of the road we pulled it off the truck on. And, you know, he said, well, does it matter what side of the road it's on? And I said, well, no, we, we could put it on either side. He goes, well, you know, this time of year, Wind's generally kicking up out of the west in the afternoon. If you put it on the other side of the road, you wouldn't be covered in dust every time somebody drove by. <laughs> That's awesome. And it's just, you know, these common knowledge and troubleshooting type things that everybody sometimes hits themselves in the head and goes, oh, uh <laughs> yeah. See, I, I mean, that's a perfect, perfect example of native science. Mm -hmm. That is knowledge that that man has from living in that place that has everything to do with the scientific method because i'm sure he made that mistake too and his dad probably said hey idiot get on the other side because don't you <laughs> right. know which way the winds come from at this time of year and you're like oh yeah okay and it has nothing to do with doing science or being a climatologist but it has everything to do with critically thinking about your environment actually doing the scientific method, even though you're not calling it that or categorizing it and learning from that experience. Yeah. And so there's one more quote from this article. It's a little long that I want to read uh, to kind of close this topic out a little bit. But so he's talking about doing uh, maintenance on a motorcycle here. 
And he says, good diagnosis requires attentiveness to the machine, almost a conversation with it rather than assertiveness, as in the position papers produced on K Street. Cognitive psychologists speak of metacognition, which is actively stepping back and thinking about your own thinking. It is what you do when you stop for a moment in the pursuit of a solution and wonder whether your understanding of the problem is adequate. The slap of worn-out pistons hitting their cylinders can sound a lot like loose valve tappets. So to be a good mechanic, you have to constantly be open to the possibility that you may be mistaken. This is a virtue that is at once cognitive and moral. That's beautiful. Yeah, I I can't add anything to that because no, it, it no, sums it up it's, perfectly. It's quite beautiful. Um, if you're going to pick one of the articles to read from this this week's show, it, it should be this New York Times article. It's Yeah, and amazing. so far in the book, the book is relatively short. Uh, it's in nice, large, friendly letters, as they would say on the Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide. Uh, it's a really easy nighttime read, and it's basically 100-odd pages of this. Oh, Excellent. That's excellent. Uh, yeah, it's definitely um, worth reading. Uh, it, I mean, this goes, this harkens back. I mean, this isn't new stuff either. I mean, it, it needs to be brought back up, but I will say um, in support of somebody that made me early on into a critical thinker um, in my honors comp two class, which most scientists hate, right? Uh, we read <laughs> Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And oh, yes. in that, Robert Piercek says the same stuff. He has a big diatribe about quality. And, I mean, it, it nearly is the same stuff because he's talking about motorcycles. So this is something that's been around, but it needs to be more widely eschewed, I believe. Um, and I will say, I know it's sort of both of our heroes, um, Click and Clack, right? The Tappet Brothers. I mean, he's a professor at MIT, right? And he did this show about how to fix cars. <laughs> And a master of troubleshooting. Yes, exactly. Um, so it's and a skill that needs to be learned, but I guarantee you probably not everyone that walks out of MIT has those skills. Yeah, and I guess the reason that we keep talking about this and keep harping on it, because we haven't done this exact show before, but we've had similar themes in mm -hmm. the past, yes. uh, is because we need to keep reminding ourselves of it because it's really easy <laughs> to not practice what you preach. <laughs> Man, it sure is. And it's very easy to dismiss anti-vaxxers and climate change deniers and all this stuff, but it needs to be approached in a different way. You know, these, these people aren't dumb, but they also haven't learned what the scientific process is. And so that's why this stuff is important. Well, and think about some of your own biases too. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if somebody starts talking to me about... Uh, the finer points of some kind of art form or some artist, I'm probably going to tune out until I realize that it's really something that I should be paying attention to. Uh. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and geologists all the time. I don't need math to do geology, really. Think about doing a sedimentation rate. That's easy math, but you need it. So there is value in these things. Yeah, and so I guess the reason we keep reading all of these books is to try to hold ourselves on some kind of semi-straight track. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I'm glad that we're not going to be talking about straight pa straight tracks in today's fun paper. Oh, man, that was a good transition. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nice dissolve. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. So today's fun paper uh, is different. Uh, <laughs> do you like pizza? 
I love pizza. It was my birthday yesterday. That was what we did was eat pizza. So yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I actually just had pizza uh, very recently as well. <laughs> so uh, this is an article that is indirectly about pizza. <laughs> it's called Infinite Families of Monohedral Disc Tilings by Hadley and Worsley. And but, that, that's mathematician speak for how to cut a pizza. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. But the clickbait is Gizmodo did, which is mathematicians have found crazy new ways to cut pizza into equal slices. <laughs> which in this case is not horrible because that's actually what they did. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and this stuff is really cool. I would be so excited if I got a pizza that looked like any of these awesome, some of them tessellations that are in this paper. Yeah, and so the idea is it's actually really hard to come up with a way to cut equal slices of pizza that don't all meet in the center. Right. So you can cut your pizza into regular six or eight or 10 or 12 pieces, depending on what size you're getting. Uh, Generally, the people that cut it when you order it from Pizza Hut or somewhere do a pretty good job. If I cut it, it's way off center and they're nowhere near equal size. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Me too. But these mathematicians started doing an approach saying, well, how can we create equal pieces that don't all have the same vertex point? And I, I love the way they do it. They never explicitly state this, but they start out looking at a hexagon and how to do this in a hexagon. And then they keep increasing the number of sides on this thing until it gets close to a sphere. And then they generalize, or a disk, a circle, and then they generalize to the circle which should sound like calculus. Yeah, it does. Uh, (laughs) Um, I do appreciate these seven gons. They're super cool looking. Yeah, and of course they come up with all kinds of mathematician-y terms and ways to write things (laughs) with rigor. Nobody else refers to a pizza as T sub 20 cut. (laughs) I am from now on, though. (laughs) I had a T sub eight the other day. <laughs> These are some pretty cool shapes, I will say, um, in terms of not even the mathematics, but the art of it. Yeah. So once again, it's on the archive. So you can click on the link in the show notes and go see these for free. You don't have to be behind any kind of paywall. But one of the ways that they started approaching the problem was uh, they made these things they called shields which are they cut towards the center of the pizza, but they made it an arc that had the same curvature as the pizza crust itself. So right. you got these kind of Starfleet badge-looking shapes. <laughs> I was trying to. I would have said fan blade, but I appreciate Starfleet badge better. Uh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> link in the show notes. Um, so <laughs> they did six of these and then eight of these, and then started cutting them across each other where they would then have some pieces that didn't have any crust and some pieces that had a lot of crust, which could alleviate some family fights. (laughs) I was thinking that because the Gizmodo uh, sort of Cliff Notes Notes version of it shows the pizza too. And I was like, man, I'd really like that all crust piece. And I could see where other people would not like that. So yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, it's funny because visually those don't look like equal pieces. But then when you read, you know, you have these sort of rounded pieces and then you cut them in half. You can see how they are. But I could see how some fights would come up because 
visually, they don't look equal. <laughs> yeah, and there's been an article uh, similar to this. I don't think we did it for a fun paper, though, on the best ways to cut a cake. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I've seen that one before. Yeah, that was similar, but this one's a little bit more complicated. It does do these these tessellating patterns. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, this is a relatively well-researched area of mathematics. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it just goes to that thing that we we're always talking about. You never know where inspiration is going to strike you, right? And so you're fighting with your lab mate because his piece of pizza was bigger. And then you're like, hey, wait a minute. How could we have done this better? <laughs> Yeah, and I was trying to think of what some uses for this could be. And one thing that immediately popped to mind was when you're cutting material in a manufacturing sense and you want to get Mm -hmm. the most pieces that are shaped however to make, uh, you know, the jacket or whatever out of the material. Right. If you did some of these clever ways to arrange things. And granted, that's a much less constrained problem than this because you don't have to be on a disc. Right. But I think you could get a lot more efficient packing and save some material by applying very similar principles. Right, exactly. Um, And I would like a shirt made out of seven gons. (laughs) Yeah, that's just, it's a really attractive (laughs) cut, the way they do it. And then they do Uh, some, uh, at the end, adding just random little jogs in it to make it more (laughs) arty. I love that part. Um, <laughs> so adding these little um, these little wedges, essentially, and little bites into the different uh, slices is super awesome looking. And it's basically, they just say it's for fun. <laughs> yeah. Though, it would be really hard to cut. I would like to see the Domino's person Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I'm going to put that in the comments next time. Could you please cut into tessellating seven guns thank you yeah yeah, please cut the pizza following method of hadley at all (laughs) and then you have to tip him like eight hundred dollars if they actually do it (laughs) right (laughs) which might happen in a college town so i would not try it (laughs) yeah you never know there's lots of uh smart people doing jobs to get through school exactly (laughs) yeah uh, so this was this was a good fun paper. I mm-hmm. I enjoyed reading this one, even if it is a little heavy on the math speak. Yeah, but it's it's well written and it's not very it's not very long, and the pictures are definitely worth holding your attention. So, oh yeah, but if you have a fun paper that you think we should talk about, or if you have any feedback about the show, we're recording this one a little bit early. So if you send something in, it might be the next show before we actually get around to addressing it if you sent something in in the last week or so uh but shannon how can they get a hold of us well send us your thoughts on what we've been ranting about today show at don'tpanicgeocast.com uh you can find us on twitter probably also ranting because that's what we like to do (laughs) uh we're at don't panic geo john is at geo underscore lehman and i am at shannon doolin and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.